Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's cut to the chase, folks. This is about inflation, your fears, your confidence in the American economy. We began this discussion as a singular high point of our trip to Washington for the World Bank and IMF meetings, and that was a conversation heated with Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute. We continue today the discussion Chairman Powell is looking at on inflation targeting. Adam, re-justify why we need to move from a 2% acceptable inflation level to something that so many are scared of a 3% level. Thanks, Tom, and thanks for having me back on surveillance. I think we've got to get to a 3% target level rather than a 2% target level for two big reasons. First is, as we've seen repeatedly for the last 12 years, when you're this close, your target is too low. That means your interest rates are too low. That means the Fed doesn't have that much flexibility. And so it's less effective in countering recessions and it's more intrusive into markets to get its work done. The second reason you want to see an inflation target that's a little higher, not permanently hugely higher, but a little higher, is because it helps restructure the economy. We're seeing this right now, that labor markets are undergoing massive change in the U.S., and you need space for people to get adjustments and to make changes both to wages and to where they work. And that's easier when they're not as close to the lower bound because people don't get don't get wage cuts. They only get wage zeros or wage up. What is the linkage here of a reflation of an economy over to nominal GDP to the great fear of the conservatives of an overheating of the economy and those ill effects? Explain the sequence of 3% persistent inflation over to a whopping large nominal GDP. Well, the two are separate, right? Overheating in some ways is driven by real factors. It's when you have more demand than you have supply, whereas the 3% is basically a nominal factor. It's about what price level you, you're, taking, you're expecting and taking into account. And so the talk about overheating, whether it's a supply constraint bottleneck or excessive fiscal policy, is something that's, that is, to use the dreaded word, transitory doesn't mean short-term over in five minutes. Powell finally picked up in the press conference what you and I have been talking about for months. The transitory for economic policy purposes means it doesn't affect the underlying trend. It doesn't mean it's over like that. Adam, how does the Fed keeping rates where they are, continuing to buy bonds, help the job creation that you're talking about, help people refine a position at a time when prices are going up of things like rent, which is directly affected by the Fed's policies? No, Lisa, you're right that there is a trade-off here. As always in economics, nothing is costless. So the point of going from 2% to 3% as your target isn't because it's costless. It's because the downside risks are worse. In terms of what you're focusing on rightly, which is the finding of jobs, what we're seeing, for example, with the massive move of workers out of small, medium enterprises to employers like Amazon, Walmart, McDonald's, Bank of America, is we've got a de facto rise in the minimum wage. 
in a lot of the big employers. And this is really important to get people to make adjustments and to resort workers into the places that are more productive. Because if you're a low-income worker, it's really risky and tough to look around and move for a new job. But if the wages go up, then there's an incentive to get past those fixed costs. So there was a great paper at Jackson Hole this summer talking about how a, a loose, slightly looser monetary policy environment, slightly higher inflation environment, helps you make adjustments to the labor market. This was a point I wrote about 25 years ago with reference to Japan, and we saw it bear fruit under Abe, that you, you, you keep monetary policy looser if you want to have real structural adjustment in the labor market. So in other words, you think that the U.S. Uh, can draw a direct analogy from Japan at this point? From Japan or from Germany after the Hartz IV reforms in the, in the early 2000s. What, what I think is going on in the labor market right now, at least in the U.S., is there's a structural change as though we had a labor market reform. We haven't had some big legislative package. It's not government-driven. But it's people, as you've been talking about on surveillance for a while now, it's people making up their minds that they need a different form of work, and it's employers making up their minds that, yeah, I can afford to pay a bit more to get the right workers and the right relationships. So that's a structural change for about 20, 25% of our workforce who are in the, in the um, low-income service workers. And so we want to facilitate that change. Adam, you've been at a central bank at these inflection points. You were at the Bank of England coming out of the 2008-2009 debacle. I just wonder, as you look to the Bank of England, you look to Threadneedle Street, where you used to be, and they start talking about a live meeting at the Bank of England this early on Threadneedle Street. Adam, what are you learning from the moment we're in? And what would you recommend to those at the Bank of England thinking about making a move at this point? Jonathan, I think we're now moving we're now not just moving countries, but we're moving themes because the UK is not like the US or like Europe or Japan right now because of Brexit. People have underplayed, I think, despite all the Sherman drawing, they've underplayed the real economic effects of Brexit. And so I've been saying for a few years, including on this program, that Brexit takes the Bank of England partway back to the 1970s. And what that means is they can't just focus on domestic inflation target the way they had when I was there and the way they have since 1992. They have to keep one eye on the markets. And that's why they're moving forward, in my view, rightly though sadly, to a much sooner liftoff than other central banks. The other thing about Brexit is that it exacerbates shocks that require flexibility and supply. And we're seeing this, that they're having the same reopening shock, the same commodity shock as the euro area or the US. But because they've cut themselves off from workers in Europe, which were their labor supply, because they've cut themselves off from easy imports and exports to some degree, the shock is that much worse for Brexit, for Brexit, post-Brexit UK. So for these two reasons, the Bank of England is facing a much less salutary set of outcomes than the other central banks, and that's why it has to move sooner, in my view, even though, again, to go back to leasing, there's a cost to it. You're more polite than I am. The rude way of saying everything you just said would be that the Bank of England now has an emerging market flavour to the policy dilemma. Would you agree no. with that, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I, I choose to say part of it back to the 70s, emerging market is waving a, a red flag, but I agree. What, what you have is 
for no fault of the Bank of England, the credibility of their anchor, the stabilization of their economy is less post-Brexit and therefore less likely other high-income economies than it was pre so, so, John, do we need a, a banner on television and for radio that says Posen says UK is banana republic? <laughs> that work? The, the governor of the Bank of England is the governor of a emerging market central it's bank. It's I don't, he didn't quite go I'd, ra- I'd, ra- I'd rather go with the child, the running around child in the background meme talk. That, that would work. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Bailey with the, the child in the background, Adam. You want to do that? Yeah. Adam Posen, thank you, sir. It's yeah. fantastic thank to catch you out here, as always, of the Peterson Institute. Never a dull moment, and Steve Chivero knows that. He is with Federated Hermes. We're th- thrilled he could join us uh, this morning. Steve, have you guys changed your asset allocation or wisdom across the capitalization view from large cap, obviously a federated heritage, over to mid cap and indeed the small cap juggernaut we're on right now? Has there been a federated shift? No, we've been pretty consistent um, being overweight cyclicals amongst the large caps being neutral, overweight, small caps, uh, having some preference for international. And, and quite frankly, Tom, you know, there's nothing that I heard yesterday uh, from the Federal Reserve that would that would change our thinking. We, we think you still have an environment where it's risk on for the time being. Is there a risk here as we talk about sequencing that all the central banks in the developed world all push back rate hiking and, uh, frankly, tightening policy until next year, until the data becomes indisputable, that we get a sort of collective tightening that really puts the brakes on a rally? Yes, I I think that's absolutely a risk. And I think that, you know, it was interesting you were talking about the BOE and sequencing. In a very rare move, the Americans were more subtle than the British, but, but I think we were doing exactly the same thing. You know, the two takeaways from yesterday from the Fed, from my perspective, were humility. You know, they recognized and admitted that they've had a misread on inflation and then optionality. By, by saying that they would or would take the opportunity to vary the speed of tapering, you know, come January, I think what they're saying is, is that if inflation continues to come in hot, and we think it will, because we think that they're misreading the labor market here, uh, that they would speed up that pace. Well, why would they do that? so that they could start rate hikes earlier. And I, I thought it was very telling when Chair Powell had the opportunity to push back harder against where the market was pricing in rate hikes for next year. He didn't. Um, and admitting that we could get the full employment by the middle of next year suggests that the market's not crazy in thinking about rate hike number one in, in June or July. So I'm looking right now at the fact that two-year yields in the U.S. are moving lower in sympathy with two-year gilt yields. And I wonder how mm-hmm. much some of the uh, central bank world is interconnected. In other words, the rate market will move collectively or it won't move at all. How much is that the dynamic that we're in right now for the developed world? Well, I think it makes sense because I think the, the inflation impulses are similar. I mean, they certainly are connected to what's going on with, with, with the pandemic and the supply chain shortages that are part of that. I think in the United States, the labor market's tighter than it is in other parts of the world and will remain so. But I think the drivers are, are, are very similar, Lisa. Um, and so I, I, it's, that's not unexpected. In the perfection of Federated Hermes, Steve, there's going to be no window dressing. But to the end of the year, there's a buy side sweat. How big is the sweat this year? I think there's sweat because I think folks have been on the wrong side of a lot of trades. Yeah. And I, I think you're going to have momentum into the end of the year. I, you know, my take from the Fed is equities are going to really like the patience message. 
I think in terms of Washington, we've defanged some of the most or potentially some of the most disruptive mm-hmm. policy options. We'll see. And so I think you can have a scenario where, you know, kind of like 2013, you've got a real strong finish at the end of the year. And it's been hard to stay with it because as constructive as we've been, you know, you'd have to have been blind not to see some of the risks that have occurred. So I, I think for folks that have been in our camp, which is to say the fundamentals are positive, respond to bad news if it happens, don't anticipate it and get caught off sides, you're fine. If you've been a little bit too reactive too early, you're going to be on the wrong side of something I think that's going to be quite positive between now and the end of the year, and you're going to try to window dress and catch up. Steve, just real quick here, what's the bad news you'd respond to? So I, I think you got to look at what policy comes out of Washington, if there's something really disruptive there on the tax or the spending side. I think what it really comes down to, Lisa, is we are in a heightened risk of dual policy error, either on the monetary policy side or the fiscal policy side. We've never spent money like this after an economy is at full capacity. Uh, we've never been this reactionary to inflation rather than anticipatory. And those, both of those things may be fine, but we don't know. So I think you've got to have humility. And quite frankly, it was really good hearing the Fed say that they're having some humility as well, because we are in uncharted waters on both monetary and fiscal policy. Steve, thank you, sir, for your humble opinion you. on this market. Steve Chevron, a federated MS. Steve, thank you, buddy. Good to see you. Lisa, that's the moment we're in the wide range of outcomes through next year. We've had some great interviews so far this week already. It was Frances Donald that called it the anti-forecast yes, for next I love year. That. I'll be interested to see what her research looks like into year end, into the outlook, into next year. What's the balance of risks to use Federal Reserve language? I think the Bank of England rate decision is fascinating because they pointed to the slowdown in growth that they experienced over the late summer, the idea of the Delta variant. I do wonder whether deferring rate hikes means fewer of them or just simply uh, concentrating them more when the data is more clear. The growth outlook has weakened since August on supply issues. It was Adam Poston that talked about the lack of flexibility around some of those supply issues, particularly in the UK. Some unique circumstances there, perhaps, Tom. But more broadly, if these central banks make a move, are they making a move into a weaker economy? And that term weaker, Tom, is relative. Because if we're talking about 4% GDP next year in the United States and 5 to 6 in the UK, you'd well, take 5 to 6 real, wouldn't you? In the summer, John, we were migrating a vector to what? 3%, 2% sub-potential GDP that's out the window. We don't know where the x-axis is. I really have trouble right now with the Fed parlor game. I'm focused on what corporations are doing. Becton Dickinson today with a major buyback. Speaking of decades, Ed Yardeni joins us right now. Dr. Yardeni of Yardeni Research. And, and, and I just want to get to the inflation story right away. And let's go back to the 70s, even 60s playbook. There is the cost. There is the push. There is the demand. There is the pull. What kind of inflation are we enjoying? Well, it, it does have some similarities with the 1970s. In the 1970s, everything that could go wrong on the inflation front seemed to go wrong. Uh, for example, uh, we closed uh, the gold window, and so the dollar took a dive, which then caused commodity prices to soar. Food prices went up. Uh, there was an issue with anchovies uh, off the coast of Peru, which somehow had an impact on soybean prices. Uh, don't ask me how that worked exactly, but it did. <clears throat> and uh, then we had two oil shocks, and uh, we had cost of living adjustments. So all those shocks went right through into wages. We don't have uh, cost of living adjustments anymore, but we've probably got the... Um, uh, labor movement uh, in uh, in control now more so than ever before. 
Uh, and it's not really a movement. It's just a shortage of workers. And so wages are going up. And I think the supply disruptions explain why productivity took a dive right. there in the uh, in the third quarter. But I, I think companies are already responding anecdotally anyways to uh, the labor shortages. They're going to be chronic. And I think uh, we are going to see a right. tremendous amount of automation. Do the mere mortals at the Fed risk a policy error? Well, they are mere mortals, so we got to start. We got to start with that uh, insight, uh, which you correctly point out. But uh, I think that uh, there's sort of a view out there, which I share, that they are behind the curve, contrary to what uh, the, the Fed chair has been saying. Uh, the economy's uh, done awfully well, uh, certainly in the first half of the year, and uh, second half, it's the supply disruptions that we don't want to see the uh, pressures of, on the pricing inflation side go into wages. Uh, so I think they're a little bit late, but look, uh, my job isn't to uh, tell the Fed what to do. It's just to anticipate what they're going to do. And what they're going to do is uh, taper, as we know, as we all know, and they're probably going to stick with it uh, through the middle of next year. And then I, I actually will not be surprised if they raise the inflation target from 2% to 3%, uh, because it's going to be an even more liberal, more progressive Fed next year. Uh, the way I see it. Wait, hold on a second. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because that's a point that Adam Posen has made as well, that perhaps they're not going to try to fight higher inflation on a base level, mm -hmm. but rather embrace it. What Correct. will sort of trigger that shift in mentality? Well, I think the Fed's going to have to at some point concede that inflation is not transitory, but it is persistent. Right now, what they're saying is that the supply chain disruptions are persistent. Well, yeah, so what does that mean? It means that inflationary pressures are going to stay persistent. Uh, so I think um, I think much will depend on uh, the, the the Fed chair. I don't think it's going to be Powell. I think it's likely to be Brainerd. I think there's going to be a couple of uh, openings that get filled by more progressive uh, kind of people. The Fed is simply going to become more politicized, uh, more progressive, and uh, I think more inclined to say, well, you know what, 2% uh, is too low, 3% is fine. And if it's a little bit above 3% for a while, we can live with it. They, they really don't want to raise interest rates um, more than they have to, and uh, they'll move the goalposts. Okay, so Ed, you mentioned the 1970s, which is basically a trigger for a lot of people watching the bond sure. market. I wonder where the analogies start and where they drop off, especially if you do have mm -hmm. a more dovish Fed that is more willing to allow inflation to hover around the 3% level. Are we really heading into a period where inflation could get away from the Fed, or do you think that the Fed can mm -hmm. keep control over it, just albeit perhaps at a bit of a higher rate? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually a, a, an optimist on the inflation outlook in terms of uh, over the next few years. I don't think this is going to be the 1970s all over again. Uh, the, the big difference is productivity collapsed during the 1970s. Uh, it, it went all the way down to zero. I don't think that's where we're heading, notwithstanding this morning's uh, disappointing news or surprising news, whatever it was. But uh, I, I think productivity is going to make a comeback, and that's uh, that's an important offset to wages going up faster than prices. You folks mentioned that we're going to be putting a lot of weight on real wages, uh, but I think we want we want to look at real wages relative to productivity. The only way that real wages can actually go up is if productivity makes a comeback. If it doesn't, then we're going to have a wage price spiral, which was really what the 1970s was all about. Okay, how do we calculate calculate that or guess that, and when do we do it, Ed? Is that a first mm -hmm. half 2022 exercise, or are we that data dependent on rising wages? Well, at this point, the uh, the productivity story really is anecdotal. You know, we, we can see that companies are scrambling uh, 
uh, to increase their productivity with robotics, with automation, with artificial intelligence. Uh, the good news is the technology is there and is relatively cheap and implementable uh, to, to make that happen. So I don't think we're going to have to wait all that long. I think by the second half of next year, we're going to see that inflationary pressures abate, partly because of productivity and partly because supply chain disruptions get uh, ameliorated. Um, and um, that's a big issue is uh, the supply chain uh, disruptions. Uh, so I think we're going to have more cars uh, by the second half of next year. Uh, more supply, and uh, that could take a lot of uh, pressure off uh, inflation. The bond vigilantes stay in hibernation then, Ed? Well, you know, it's hard to uh, for, for them to uh, have much of an impact when the Fed basically has been rigging the, the bond market. I mean, they've been so aggressive in that market that I, it's, it's hard to even call it a market. It's not a free market, uh, certainly. Uh, but I think uh, by, uh, by sometime next year, we'll see 2% on the 10-year. Uh, uh, we, we also have to factor in demographic factors here. In the 70s, we had a tremendous influx of baby boom uh, workers. Uh, now they're retiring and we're seeing that the growth rate in the labor force is close to zero. The only way this economy is going to grow on a ten- trend basis is if productivity makes a comeback. And I'm optimistic on that. Good to catch up, Ed. As always, Ed Yardeni, the Thank original you. man of coining the phrase, the author of Bond Vigilantes. Ellen Wald, Senior Fellow at Atlantic Council, joining us for a brief visit this morning. Ellen, the spread is narrowed between West Texas Intermediate and Brent Crude. Do you just apply within your macro view that Brent will widen out higher or will West Texas Intermediate come back lower? Well, you know, one of the one of the interesting things is that uh, WTI has been doing better recently, uh, particularly with foreign buyers, because uh, it was uh, it was priced a bit lower, and so we saw some uh, increase in exports from the U- U.S. to uh, China and other countries. Uh, if that spread collapses, then uh, the U.S. Uh, benchmark may become less interesting to uh, to foreign buyers, and uh, that may actually help gasoline prices at home a little bit. Well, it may help at home a little bit, but are we are, are we at a tension point on gasoline? I see it on uh, AAA unleaded three forty a gallon. The moving average back at hundred dollars a barrel was like three fifty eight a gallon. Or is this time different? So it does seem that gasoline prices are starting to uh, to calm down. We're not seeing as many increases as we were previously. So I do think that we're kind of coming to an equilibrium in terms of gasoline prices at this time. Uh, we've got plenty, uh, you know, of gasoline in storage. Some of the recent numbers from the EIA are showing that. Um, you know that that crude and and gasoline stores are are increasing a little bit. So uh, I think that's helped push the numbers down. Of course, if we have a very big uh, demand over the Thanksgiving holiday, that could certainly cause some uh, some prices to rise. Ellen. Honestly, the idea that Biden is planning to release some of these stores in the strategic reserves, how dramatic of a response would that be? 
You know, I don't think that it would produce quite as dramatic a response as he or his administration is really hoping for. Uh, if you look at the global picture in terms of, of oil, uh, you know, we've got OPEC uh, looking to increase production by 400,000 barrels a day starting in uh, in December. Plus, you've got global consumption at about 100 million barrels a day, which is basically where it was pre-pandemic. And so uh, the U.S. could do an SPR release, but refineries are running pretty pretty much uh, at capacity. We've had some declines in the total amount of capacity of our refining since uh, the pre-pandemic days. But if there's a bigger uh, SPR release, that's not necessarily going to translate into more gasoline and lower prices for the long term. We could see a brief, uh, you know, brief push down. But in general, unless it's uh, repeated, I don't think it's going to help all that much in the long term. Ellen, there's also a question about what President Biden's stance has been toward the shale industry. Is there anything identifiable from your perspective that the Biden administration could do to try to prompt more pumping in the shale patch or whether that's even appropriate in this type of situation? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's definitely a factor in uh, higher oil prices. I know that Biden really wants to blame Russia and OPEC for failing to produce more, but they are actually increasing production at a at a pretty good clip uh, compared to the U.S. Uh, oil industry, which is not really increasing production at nearly that clip. We heard that there was uh, 11.5 million barrels a day produced uh, last week in the U.S., which is a slight tick upward. It's really not enough of an increase to bring oil prices down. And the Biden administration has certainly made a lot of producers very wary of increasing production. It's not just about investment and uh, and um, the desire for capital discipline. It's also a concern over growing regulations and the methane rules that were announced earlier this week are not helping things. I do think we will con continue to see a slight increase upward, but unless the Biden administration comes out in a big way and says, hey, we want to encourage investment in this and we're going to help the situation, we're going to do what we can to assist in, uh, in more production, I don't see uh, a major increase in production. Ellen. happening anytime soon. Ellen, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With the Atlantic Council on Oil. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.